0: One of the challenges that churches have had for a long time and that they face still today um, is very honestly, how do you minister to and meet the needs of varying um, age groups and different groups and preferences within the church? And, you know, some people want something and another group wants something else. How do you manage all of that? And that tension and struggle often touches us in the area of worship or in the area of music, those kinds of things. And and so what do we do with that? I think the easiest way out, the path of least resistance, uh, would be to break the congregation up into different groups. You know, some Friday night, Saturday night with some friends, you go to those movie theaters, and they've got like six different theaters in there. It used to be one big theater, but now there's six different kinds, or eight, or whatever it might be. You know that? And you go in and you, you pick whatever flavor of movie you might want to see. And so, you, you know, you split up and you go to different things. I was thinking, we could do that with the church. Don't you think so? We could divide the church up into a whole series of little modules Put some partitions in And we could divide the church up into different groups For instance when you can come in You could decide if you want to go to the group that is clapping or no clapping Okay And you can head there I like the clapping bunch And so I'll join the cl- Another one you could do is we could also have an area Which is for hand raising or no hand raising I'll figure it out as a church You don't like to raise your hands very much Okay, I just kind of know that I do I sit down here all by myself But that's fine Um, And so that's kind of We could do that Think about the worship options People who are sort of 45, 50 or whatever Over that If you like to sing Kind of the great hymns of the faith You know Charles Wesley And can it be that I should gain An interest in our Savior's blood Hymns like that We'll create a separate area for you And we'll give you a big organ Okay And they'll play away there And drums are not allowed all right, you got it, okay. And then, if you really like the new songs, the praise songs, and so song on, support, we're going to div- we're going to set up a separate room in another part of the building that is soundproofed. You really aren't getting this very much, are you? <laughs> Um, it's soundproof. And you can go down there if you like that. And you can crank the speakers up as much as you want. Because frankly, we don't really care. It's soundproof and you can do whatever you want. Alright? And then we could have another service that was designed for folk. Um, you see, I was raised in the 60s. And I was raised on folk music. I was raised by Bob Dylan and Pierre Polymeri and the Kingston Trio, and... People you've obviously never heard of. Okay? So where's Willis? Can I borrow Willis's guitar for a minute? (laughs) Now, Winston's awake. I know that. I ain't sure about the rest of you. Okay, and so the people have been raised on folk music. See, we understand this. And we know what our call to worship is. You can sing along. Kumbaya, my Lord. Kumbaya. Kumbaya, my Lord. Kumbaya. So we understand that. Okay? So we got that all figured out. And we also know where the answer comes from, alright? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. When I do this kind of stuff in church, my children say to me, Dad, keep your day job. There you go. But, that wouldn't work. It just wouldn't work. One of the unique challenges of the church is that the church is the one organization that's called to be multi-ethnic and multi-generational and multi-style all at the same time. You know why? Because we need each other. The church is perhaps the one place left where we need to struggle to do this. And at times it's not easy. <clears throat> but we do not take the path of least resistance. We need each other. This spring we're studying a little book called First 1 John. 105 verses. Written 2,000 years ago. But it's made alive to the Holy Spirit by us today. And John writes to Christians. And he, John understands that there's different groups within his church. And somehow he's got to gather them all in. And somewhere you are in who John is speaking to this morning. Because this is a multi-generational letter. I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to read a few verses as we read God's word. 1 John chapter 2. <clears throat> if you want to follow me, we're going to start at Verse 12. And in a moment I'll explain who you might be in this letter. I write to you, dear children, says, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. I write to you, fathers, because you've known Him as from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you've known the Father. I write to you, fathers, as He goes back and forth through these groups, because you've known Him as from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong, and the word of God lives in you. And you've overcome the evil one. Father, we are somewhere in these verses this morning. We are one of these groups of people. So may you speak to us. Amen. PBC. <clears throat> now these might be different age groups. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> they might be different people at stages, different stages of the spiritual lives. I think probably it's a really bit of both. And when you untangle... What John says to each of these groups. Here's what you find. He writes to young children. We will take that this morning to mean those who are new or relatively new Christians. The first steps of spiritual discovery. And you've got two things that really are alive for you. First of all, you have a sense of God's forgiveness. That's where we all start. That God has forgiven us. That's the start button for each one of us. It's where we take our first step as we're on the rung of the ladder. Forgiveness is the initial gift of God to each one of us. I'm forgiven. That's what we first experience. And secondly, they knew God of this as their father. They've been adopted into this spiritual family, spiritual home. You know, every church... VCDC here is no exception. Every church needs the energy and the enthusiasm of new Christians. Because they bring life and vitality to the whole place. Some of us may remember the joy of new birth. The laughter of God in our lives. And this church needs the, the simplicity and the freshness of young Christians and young people. Sometimes as we get kind of old, we forget that initial joy. We can't get settled down. We become too comfortable. We become a little too stodgy and dull and dry. And we need the energy and the enthusiasm that really comes from new Christians. We need to see people coming to Christ. We need through the year to see people coming baptized. We need to see their joy and their enthusiasm. And I'll tell you, churches that don't have that are lacking a great deal. And then he writes to the young man, and i like to that the young woman. You are the, the people are raising their families and their kids, and you're living in the trenches of daily life. You're raising families. You're working hard. You're giving time and energy to daily life and ministry. You're juggling work and family and church, and you need John says you need a strong grasp of the Word of God to fight to be overcomers in the daily battle that you are in. We need the Word of God because you are in the trenches. Of daily life. This third group. He calls the fathers. We'll take that this morning to mean. uh, The seniors and the most mature. Men and women. Of the faith and the church. And you know what? We need you. Because you're rich in the stored experiences of faith. You're the people who have walked a long time with God. We need your wisdom. We need the faith that they bring. We need the years of experience they bring into the church, we need their stability, we need you to lead the way but can I say to you and I'm saying now to people like me don't keep your foot on the brake too long there's a point at which you need to move over and let other people take on the leadership of the church and then no matter who we are whether we're new children in the faith young men and women or the fathers in the faith, here's what he says look at verse 15 don't love the world or anything in the world if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting what he has and does, comes not from the Father, God, but from the world. The world and his desires pass away, but the person who does the will of God lives forever. Do not love the world. It's a strong challenge to misplaced affection, to stand apart from the world. Now, this... Man has in the years led some people into monasteries to escape the temptations of the world, only to face, I think, often a deeper darkness in their own lives. It is like people of all of silence, thinking if they end words they will end the struggle, but it does not. Other people have fled into the desert, but they have confused solitude with loneliness. It has led churches to turn their backs on the very people they were sent to serve, and churches have become fortresses instead of places of ministry and service. They have closed their doors rather than opened their doors. As a young Christian growing up in in Scotland, I heard all kinds of sermons about not loving sermons, about not loving the world. What that meant? Preachers created long lists of things that we were not supposed to do. you know, and so on. And sometimes the rules change. And I know the connections this church has. So I, I, I see this uh, little tongue-in-cheek. Can you go there with me? I leave on the 3 o'clock ferry, so it did not matter. Um, in 1966, the largest Baptist seminary in the United States changed the rule that it had for 151 years. For 151 years, the seminary had a rule against dancing. He didn't dance. But after 151 years, it was now okay for Baptists to dance. That made me think. If you haven't danced for 151 years, how in the name would you know how to dance? For those who are like 45, 50 and over, you grew up in churches. What were the things you were told Christians, good Christians, did not do? What did you not do? This is your turn to talk. Okay, this is dialogue. Okay, we got it? Remember the rules? It's your turn. What were you just told them by sermons? Good Christians did not do this. You didn't gamble. Okay, you didn't, did you play cards, Rosita? You did? Rosita, we'll talk later. We have to, we have to do something about this. What, what were you just told you did not do? Did, Christians didn't drink, okay? What else? You didn't go to movies. You certainly not. You would not go to movies. You would not go to nightclubs. What's a nightclub? <clears throat> did you dance? No. Yes. Rosita... Whoa, oh, man. We're going to have to do it. Now, I was raised on Scottish country dancing. Now that's different. <laughs> Anything else? What did, you, did you work on Sundays? Did you cut the grass on Sundays? Hmm? Yes? <laughs> Man, what kind of Christians were you? Where did you ever grow up? You, <clears throat> you understand my point. These were the things that the church said, you did not do this. Because good Christians didn't do this. And... Cultural taboos and rules are really popular. And you understand as the group becomes more rigid, you have to think less. Because the thinking is done for you by the leadership. The more rigid the group, the stricter the rules. Now I know that there's clear moral issues. But John says don't love the world. We need to look more deeply into what that really means. The word for world that he uses is the word that we know in English. It's the word cosmos. And the word cosmos reflects the harmony, the nature, the order of God. Things are predictable in cosmos. The opposite of cosmos, by the way, in Greek is the word chaos. Now, in the Bible, there are three different dimensions and ways in which this word cosmos is used. First of all, there is a world to be enjoyed. There is a cosmos that's to be enjoyed with a sense of gratitude. And this world cosmos word cosmos is used is this sense of The world of God. And Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's. That's cosmos. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's cosmos. Cosmos is the creation, is the landscape of God. We neither have the detail of a worldless God or the emptiness of a godless world. Remember, that's Gnosticism. But God walks for us in the landscape of creation. He leaves His fingerprints in the muddy earth and His footprints on the sand. Roman says to us, for since the creation of the world, that's cosmos, God's invisible qualities, which means His eternal nature, His divine nature, they've been clearly seen in us. So the, the world is where this invisible God makes Himself visible. His voice speaks into the silence and emptiness and things come into being. Cosmos means we're not alone. We see the beauty of the North Shore mountains. and We ought to stand back morning by morning and just say, wow. We're told that this cosmos finds its clients for us in Jesus Christ. It says in Colossians, all things were created by Him and for Him, and in Him all things hold together. That Jesus is the glue that holds our world together. We're told to hold the fruit of the earth in our hands and be filled with gratitude to God. Essentially, you know, I don't know if many of you are gardeners, I'm not, my wife doesn't let me into the garden at all, but we don't really grow anything. We don't create anything. We just move stuff around. But we don't make it grow. And when John challenges don't love the world, he's not meaning this kind of world. Remember, Gnosticism was dualistic. It divided the world into the spiritual, the good, the holy, and the material. And teaching us that only the spiritual up here mattered. Christianity must not buy into that Gnostic dualism about creation. We're not pantheists. We don't believe that God lives in the inanimate things of rocks and trees and whatever. Mother Earth is not the female version of our Creator Father God. Because a Christian view of creation is affirming of the world. We need to know that. Without that gratitude, we become arrogant. J.K. Chesterton said that the chief idea of his life was learning the practice of taking things with gratitude and not for granted. He said the worst moment of truth really for an atheist comes when he has a profound sense of gratitude and realizes he does not have anybody to be thankful to. So Christians are to stand the, under the rainbow of the cosmos. See the beauty, the order, the variety, the detail of creation. And we have to be both thankful and humble under that. The earth, is cosmos is the theater of God's revelation. And the English... Elizabeth Barrett Browning wraps it all up I and mean, beautifully in a little couplet when she says, Earth's crowned with heaven. And every common bush aflame with God. But only those who see take off their shoes. She says, The rest just pluck blackberries. Earth's crammed with heaven. Second way in which cosmos is used Cosmos is those a world of people that are to be loved. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that's the cosmos. John obviously means here the world is not our creation, the world is people. People who are the object and the focus of God's love. The primary reason people came. It's part of the tragedy of Christianity that there have been times as well as being earth denying. The church has always been people denying. And turned its back on a very... um, people that it was sent to reach. That is not the heart of God. The heart of God turns towards people, the world. And in this use of cosmos, we need to remember that the world is not the enemy. People are the victims of the enemy. And God comes to set them free. In this cultural battle, we are in a city like Vancouver. <laughs> Whole kind of struggles. It is very easy to confuse moral issues with the gospel. Moral issues are important, but they are not the reason that Jesus came and died. Jesus did not come to die to make us moral people. Jesus came and died to make us new people. And it's easy to forget that the world, the cosmos, is made up of people for whom Christ died. The world is now the theater of redemption. And the audience is invited to watch Jesus hanging on a cross. Third use of cosmos... Don't love this cosmos. There's a world to be handled with care. John says, verse 15, Do not love, that's, by the way, is the word agape. Do not love the world or anything in the world. John uses this very special word for the love of God. And he says, you know what? We can agape God, which we're supposed to. Or we can agape the world. But you cannot agape God and agape the world at the same time. It is the tragedy of misplaced affection. And loving the world is more than a list of kind of bad things. And it's a sample of all of the different ways, it means all of the different ways we can do life and rob life of its meaning. Apart from God. In this sense, cosmos is all of the systems and strategies, the principalities and powers that are in to the mind of God it's all the ways in which the world violates the creation of God it's all the ways in which the good gifts of God are turned inside out and used for evil ends it's all the things that stand against the sovereign power of the kingdom of God and try to usurp his authority it is the arrogance of Satan who tried to be his God and for that was cast out of heaven sin is much more than doing a bad thing Sin is all the ways in which we try try to find meaning in life apart from God. And usually then we become gripped with some unhealthy, some unwholesome obsession. When some other righteous good meaning is not met. And so to encourage, to support, to patronize, to finance, to defend all of those things that are anti-God is not to be a friend of God. How can we do that? What's some of the temptations? John says, gives us. let me suggest four ways. First of all, temptation number one. We can be tempted to find the meaning of life in selfishness. That's the lust of the flesh. Flesh, by the way, is not always physical. It is not necessarily sexual. Temptation works and expresses itself through our bodies. But the scriptures say to us, it always starts in the heart. And it's the temptation of number one to look out for number one ourselves. It's all of the ways we climb the ladder to success. And we don't really care if we have to climb over other people to do that. Temptation number two. We're tempted by the sensual nature of the world. The lust of the eyes. We live in a world today that tempts our senses. I've said often that we live in what I call a pornographic world. And that doesn't mean playboy and centerfolds. It means one that uses and teases all of the visual senses to tempt us. That's what makes our world pornographic. Advertising and commercials are not about information. They're about stimulating our senses, exciting our eyes, making us watch and making us want. And once they have done that, you know what? They have by and large done their job in us. Greed will usually do the rest carry us the rest of the way. Temptation often begins with a loop. Third one. Much more we can say about that. Temptation number three. We're tempted in the area of pride. We want to show off. We want to show what we've done, what we bought, what we've we achieved, and all of those things. That's temptation. It comes in the area of pride. And fourthly, we're tempted to invest our lives in what will not last. One of the sad marks of our society today is transience. Things don't last. And nothing is really supposed to last. And so, as someone wrote, today's urgent message is written on disposable paper. Because even the message is disposable. And you you transfer this attitude of a, a kind of a throwaway society, whether it's appliances or Kleenex or coffee cups, Then, sadly and tragically, we transfer that attitude to relationships. And relationships then become part of this throwaway society. And the last tragic throwaway, even life becomes disposable. In strong contrast, one of the marks of the Christian life in mind is that we would take a long-term view of life and a long-term view of history. Life is not short-term. And history is not a dead end. And here's our challenge. Here's our tension. We're called to juggle these three worlds, these three types of cosmos, all at the same time. We're called to enjoy the world God's created. We're commanded to love the people that God loves. And we're warned to live in this cultural world without being seduced by its greed or abducted by its power or raped by its pragmatism. Remember Jesus says to the disciples and to the Holy Spirit and the Word of us, You do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. And some Christians and churches responding to those in a lot of different ways. They've removed from society. And faith has removed itself from daily life. And what John Newhouse calls the public square, the public square which is community life. Community life has become what he calls naked and the spiritual and the sacred have been stripped from it. And we're left with a, with a world of spent, sacred forces. Growing up in our Baptist church in Scotland, um, our youth ministry, ministry for children and young people, was largely what was done through the Girl Guides and the, boys, the Cubs and the Boy Scouts. That was our youth ministry. Because that movement had been started by Lord and Lady Baden-Powell who were deeply committed Christians. But over the years, that Christian influence has been taken out of those movements, and largely they've become secularized. That's the naked public square. Right beside the church where I served in Vancouver, First Baptist, it's a huge, big, new building. But it belongs to what's simply called one ladder. What's that? The Y. The Y. You're going to go to the Y for lunch? You're going to go to the gym at the Y? But why is not what its proper name is. What's its proper name? Young Men's Christian Association. But nowadays it's just the why. That you see is the naked public square. The spiritual and the sacred have been stripped out of these things and we're left in a world of spent sacred forces. We've taken this word about not loving the world in response. We have sadly retreated from huge areas of society, leaving them desolate and barren of spiritual influence. Thousands of acres of community life and education and schools and politics, media, business, stripped of Christian influences as Christians have retreated and left them. We believed the false propaganda that our faith was only to be a privatized faith. We retreated from the dangerous influences of the world and practiced our faith within the safety of our temples. And in our withdrawal, we believe we're genuinely not seeking the world. But Jesus also prays to the Father. My prayer is that you would not take them out of the world, talking to your disciples, but that you would protect them from the evil one. Jesus says, don't take them out of the cosmos, but protect them from the evil one. The New Testament really knows nothing of monks and monasteries. But just ordinary people living like Christians in a demanding, excuse me, in a demanding everyday world. Jesus is saying, you got to go live in the real world without loving the world. Remember, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you're the soul of the earth, you're the light of the world. Let your light so shine before man, people. So that they may see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. Where do we start with that? We must show that our, the world that our Christianity is much, much more than a private belief. It is more than personal salvation, more than singing our hymns and behind closed doors on a sunny morning. Christianity has to be a cosmic view of life. It is a cosmic worldview that answers deepest questions of the human heart and struggle, Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? There's this life of meaning and purpose. And only Christianity offers this bifocal view of life. Bringing together in Jesus the spiritual and the physical, the natural, the moral, the the private world and the public life. We need to hear again the challenge of a Dutch prime minister from some years ago, Abraham Kuyper. Ringing in our ears, he said, There is not one square inch of this entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out This is mine, this belongs to me. So the next time you're downtown and you see a girl standing at the street corner waiting for a next customer, or you see someone in an alley putting a needle in their ear, in their arm, say to yourself, Jesus says, This is mine this belongs to me. The next time in Barard Street you pass the law courts or you pass a hospital you pass a school a community center you go to your office and you see your desk on a Monday and a Tuesday morning. Say to yourself Jesus says this is mine. This belongs to me. He says to people to his people I have called you out of the cosmos but so that you can live in the cosmos And be a slight. We know that evil lives in the systems and the principalities and power of our modern world. We know that creation bears the scars of the misuse and the beauty of God's creation is littered with our garbage. We know that living the Christian faith is a relentless challenge between good and evil, between the perfect and the actual. But the fact that it is a challenge does not mean we do not engage it. It means we've got to engage it all the more vigorously and with the strength and the power of the Word of God. Willis, do you want to come back? And I'm going to invite you to stand. So can I say to you this morning, if you're one of those new Christians, we need your passion, we need your energy, we need your fresh love and vitality for God. Enjoy the forgiveness of God. Be part of his family. And don't love the world. Love God. If you're one of those young men and women who are living the battle of life and you're raising kids and you're going to work and you're trying to juggle all kinds of stuff, be strong in God's Word. Because you know what? You fight a battle every day. And don't love the world. And love God. And if you're seasoned in the faith, then keep on going. We need your wisdom. Don't slow down. And don't love the world. But you know what? Love God.